Previously on Unfucking the Republic. Jeffrey Bezos, Jeffrey Bezos, Jeffrey Bezos, you did it. You know, I think that was a moment where publishers started to realize, oh, wait a minute, like, we, they're our partner, but they now have the beginnings of a boot on our windpipe. The $230 billion corporation with a multi-billion dollar profit margin? would have to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 million a year. Amazon was pissed. Amazon workers walk out the door to protest conditions at the warehouse in Romulus. They say they are scared for their own health. As the New York Times reported in a special investigation last year, quote, even before the pandemic, previously unreported data shows Amazon lost about 3% of its hourly associates each week meaning the turnover among its workforce was roughly 150% a year. The company built on disdain for the government was operating warehouses subsidized by state governments and filled with employees that required supplemental food benefits to survive and who could now redeem them on Amazon. And isn't it The war of words between Jeff Bezos and the White House escalated on Monday, with the two sparring over the Biden administration's handling of inflation and its plans to tax the rich. Local municipalities don't even realize the double-dip damage that they're doing to their own communities by accepting these warehouses and fulfillment centers. By giving them subsidies and incentives, they're robbing the local coffers right off the bat. So when these centers come into town, Amazon can immediately jump in to offer prime service to the community. This, in turn, chips away at the local community businesses and storefronts that can't compete with the service, and they go out of business, thereby further depriving the community of badly needed property and sales tax income. And so it goes. U to the N to the FTR. I'm fucking the Republic, beating people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Hey. Could have made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with the fuckers around the globe. And Brittany brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. On fuckers, on Canuckers, you're a fuckers 99. On the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax, to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, yo fuck, fuck Milton Friedman. And Fucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members Cringe G, Jennifer S, G Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Asshole, Awesome A, and Asoke. In part one of Amazon, the unfulfillment company, we established that the global giant isn't exactly a great neighbor in its hometown of Seattle. The prime example being how hard it fought against a, quote, head tax on the number of people a company employs in the city, which would go toward combating homelessness. It was estimated at the time Amazon lobbied to kill the bill that it would have cost Amazon $12 million a year when it was turning a billion dollar a quarter profit. We examined Jeff Bezos's extreme focus on the customer to the exclusion of all else, most notably his hourly employees, which many tout as the secret to Amazon's success how it modeled its future success on an all-out assault on the publishing industry, a strategy that it would employ over and over again as it began to dominate multiple arenas. 
how its top-line success generated massive gains for shareholders while employees struggled to make ends meet. This was best illustrated by its industry-leading 150% turnover rate and the shocking number of its workers who were forced to apply for SNAP benefits. And we recapped Amazon's ability to game the political system through lobbying efforts and persuasion in the halls of power to win lucrative government contracts and change the nature of RFPs to own the government procurement process. The result thus far has been historic, truly. Amazon is now the third largest company on the planet and the second largest in the United States behind only Walmart, which it will likely surpass in the next year or two. Building a better mousetrap and controlling politicians isn't exactly unique to Amazon, though. So it still doesn't explain how this one-time online bookseller was able to literally upend all business conventions, surpass its peers in tech in terms of outright volume, make its founder the wealthiest man in the world, and grow so big, even the U.S. government is incapable of taming the beast. So today we'll dig a little deeper into the business itself. We'll look at some of the different business units that contribute to Amazon's massive top-line revenue and are also extreme profit centers, and some key acquisitions over the years that offer insight into just how big Amazon's appetite is and how it learns and grows almost like it's a sentient corporate being. Unlike some of its peers, Amazon rarely has a misstep that it doesn't learn from. Facebook's half-assed entry into crypto, failure to launch competitors to Groupon and Foursquare, and various developer platform flubs were all heavily publicized misses. Likewise, Google has had its fair share of flops from a would-be competitor to Twitter, Google Glasses, Google Plus, and others. That's not to say Amazon succeeded with every new idea. In fact, it probably has more product failures in the graveyard. But what's fascinating about its more notable failures is that it somehow had the ability to learn and grow from them to create new and improved concepts based on the original or to somehow turn it into an expensive win in the long run. For example, one of the acquisitions we'll cover was Quincy, parent company of diapers.com, among other big online retailers. Even though Amazon eventually shut down these divisions, it effectively shut out a large competitor at the same time. Bezos has always been quick to shut down initiatives that don't show promise, but pieces of them tend to appear in future releases or its core products. Always testing, iterating, and improving. Better. Stronger. Faster. We'll finish up today looking at some small but important victories against the retail titan and try to assess the total impact of arguably the most impressive but dangerous company the world has ever seen. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G., and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Chapter 4. Big, Bigger, Biggest Well, it looks like old Amazon is slowing down a bit from its pandemic high. Its first quarter revenues for 2021 grew 44% over 2020, an indication of just how dominant the company was during the pandemic and how it increased the velocity and volume of sales on the platform. Contrast that with the first quarter of 2022, where it grew only 7% over the same period last year. That's what Wall Street considers a slowdown. 
only 7% growth over an already preposterous revenue number. That's not to say the company isn't facing some headwinds as it deals with supply chain and inflation issues that confront us all. And it did report a loss for Q1, although this was due to a massive write-off and higher than normal costs related to the unprecedented expansion of warehousing across the country. The first will help them avoid taxes. The latter will serve them in the long run as capacity was a critical issue. So on the books, these measures affected the profitability, but the fact remains that Amazon is a fucking monster. You're a monster. One of the ways it's dealing with inflation pressures and mounting costs of expanding its physical presence is by passing along costs to the consumer, as one does. For example, it increased the cost of its Amazon Prime membership by $20 and has found ways to pass along fuel surcharges to vendors who leave surplus inventory in its warehouses. But on the whole, Amazon's growth is beginning to normalize where consumer spending is concerned, as consumers feel more comfortable venturing out into the world. But consumer online spending is just one aspect of Amazon's business. As the New York Times reports, quote, Amazon also had bright spots in its business. Amazon Web Services, its cloud computing business, grew 37% in the quarter to $18.4 in sales, end quote. See, this is just one of Amazon's burgeoning business units that are growing exponentially. On their own, many of these divisions are formidable. Taken together, they begin to paint a picture of an unstoppable force in the nation's economy, or the world for that matter. All told, Amazon posted revenue of $468 billion in 2021. In Q1 of 2022, Amazon net revenue was just over $116 billion, which puts it on a pace to exceed half a trillion dollars this year because the fourth quarter is historically its best by a significant margin. At that point, it'll be well on its way to exceeding Walmart's revenue, making it the largest revenue-generating company in the world. Now, for context, even at the 2021 ending figure of $468 billion, Amazon is larger than the GDP of the following nations. Nigeria, Iran, Austria, United Arab Emirates, Norway, Ireland, Israel, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, South Africa, Denmark, Colombia, Bangladesh, Egypt, Chile, Finland, Vietnam, Romania, Czech Republic, Portugal, Iraq, Peru, Greece, New Zealand, Qatar, Algeria, Hungary, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Kuwait, Morocco, Slovakia, Kenya, Ecuador, Puerto Rico, Ethiopia. You get the picture. Basically, if Amazon were a nation, its revenues would rank it as the 27th largest in the world. Now, as we've mentioned, only Walmart and China's state-owned energy company, State Grid, are larger at the moment. For now, when asked about the inevitability of Amazon becoming the biggest in the world, Bezos had this to say. Well, Dick, here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a, just a big, hairy American winning machine. If you ain't first, you're last. So let's take a look at all of the ways in which Amazon makes it rain. Here's a summary of Amazon's revenue from insider intelligence. The numbers are staggering. The avenues are diverse. And this only represents a single quarter. Fourth quarter of 2021 specifically. Manny and 99. Give a hand here. Yeah, no doubt. To start with, there's the part everyone knows. Online retail. In just Q4 of 2021, Amazon did $66 billion in sales from products like books, games, music, software, you name it. One of the reasons their sales typically jump so much in the fourth quarter, beyond just the holiday shopping season in the U.S., is the Black Friday to Cyber Monday stretch. 
According to Insider Intelligence, quote, by our estimates, Amazon's global retail e-commerce sales will reach $729.76 billion in 2022, an 18.8% increase year over year. Over to you, 99. Thank you, Manny. The next largest segment is the third-party seller services, coming in at a cool $30 billion for the quarter. So, apart from the items and inventory Amazon manages and sells on the platform, it has partnerships with tons of third-party sellers who sell through Amazon's marketplace. Of course, this isn't free or even cheap. Here's what the report says. Quote, According to the Q4 2021 earnings report, more than 130,000 third-party sellers worldwide surpassed $100,000 in sales on Amazon between Black Friday and Christmas Day. U.S.-based third-party sellers also smashed records, selling an average of 11,500 products per minute, end quote. Well, thank you both. Now, this next segment is a little more complicated, but it's awesome in scope. It's called Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Folks in the business might recognize this because AWS servers are very popular hosting environments. In the IT world, it's huge. AWS is a global cloud hosting network with myriad tools for developers. It's an extremely profitable sector for Amazon, which has quietly grown over the past several years. In Q4, it brought in nearly 18 billion, growing 40% over the same period last year. The report attributes this explosive growth to marquee customers like NASDAQ, Meta, Goldman Sachs, and Pfizer, moving their digital infrastructure over to AWS. Now back to the book Fulfillment, as McGillis writes, quote, in 2013, it won a $600 million cloud contract from the CIA and branches of the military were starting to explore shifting to the cloud too. By 2017, AWS was providing cloud services to, among others, GE, Capital One, News Corp, Verizon, Airbnb, Slack, Coca-Cola, and even direct rivals like Apple and Netflix, while bringing in more than $17 billion in revenue for the year, a tenth of Amazon's total. Between its dominance of the cloud and its dominance of online sales, Amazon had positioned itself as a gatekeeper that extracted fees, what economists called rent, on two of the biggest realms of digital commerce activity, data storage and e-commerce you could compare it to a utility company. Amazon had, in essence, slapped a meter on the side of the nation's data centers, except without the regulatory limits that utilities faced, end quote. So as of 2022, it's estimated that AWS has a 34% market share of the so-called cloud. Taken together, AWS, Microsoft, and Google control 65% of the global spend on cloud computing services, with Amazon growing at a much faster rate than its peers. And if you still think you're escaping the prying eyes of Amazon, just know that AWS hosts streaming services like Netflix, Disney+, HBO Max, Peacock, Discovery+, and Hulu, in addition to, of course, Prime Video. Another way they monetize their eyeballs is through advertising. Now, most people associate online advertising with companies like Meta and Google. So this is one of the areas that surprised Wall Street analysts the most. Amazon's digital ad revenue increased 32% over last year to a staggering $9.7 billion in Q4 of 2021. The full year shows that Amazon's ad revenue division brought in $31 billion. That's more than it brought in with Amazon Prime and, get this, more than YouTube. One of the reasons this was such a surprise is because 2021 is the first year that Amazon broke out advertising revenue specifically on its earnings call. So all told, Meta, 
Alphabet, parent company of Google and YouTube, and now Amazon control three quarters of the digital advertising revenue and 50% of all advertising in the United States. For some perspective, Snapchat made $4 billion in revenue, and that's their core business model. Amazon's ad revenue alone is seven times that amount. Most of us probably think about Amazon Prime as same day or next day delivery. Basically, preferred status for delivering to our doorsteps. But Prime comes with a lot more than that. Prime members have access to videos, audiobooks, music, ebooks, and other subscription services all in the Prime bundle. While the company held down the cost of Prime since 2018, it raised the monthly fee to $14.99 this year to help offset increased labor and transportation costs. You know, because you can't expect a company to absorb inflation and cut into profits. It's estimated that there are now 157 million Prime users in the United States, which explains why subscription revenue increased by 15% last quarter to $8 billion. So let's round things out by talking about the physical world. Though I should point out that this is not a comprehensive list. Amazon has any number of smaller divisions, innovation centers, and concepts that drive revenue, but we're focusing on the big ones worthy of exploration on their earnings calls. So you'll recall that Amazon purchased Whole Foods in 2017. This still makes up the bulk of their retail presence, but Amazon also operates some other branded retail concepts like Amazon Fresh, Amazon Go, Amazon Books, pop-up stores, etc. Now, they're not going to keep them all, and when it comes to brick and mortar, the company is very quick to shut down concepts that aren't working. As Insider Intelligence notes, quote, while these concepts may never generate the level of revenues brought in by Amazon's e-commerce business, they will continue to serve as discovery platforms for the products and services available through Amazon, whether in-store, online, or somewhere in between. Rounding out our sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Linny Liu. Chapter 5. It's a matter of antitrust. Now, you said this week that you are, quote, absolutely concerned about Amazon's, quote, extraordinary power. Do you think Amazon has gotten too big? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think this is an, look, this is an issue that has got to be looked at. Uh, what we are seeing all over this country is the decline in retail. Uh, we're seeing this incredibly large company getting involved in almost every area of commerce. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. Calls to break up Amazon aren't new, and we'll cover some of the recommendations that have come out of Congress to do just that. It's a tempting narrative, but we have to know what we're talking about, what exactly we're breaking up. We just reviewed Amazon's biggest divisions. Does it help to break off a piece or multiple pieces? Will taking Whole Foods out of the equation curtail Amazon's growth, shutting down Amazon Studios? Do we somehow pick apart their platform so they can only sell certain items? Amazon isn't Ma Bell. We can't just regionalize it because it gathers and ships products all over the world. It isn't Standard Oil with a stranglehold on a single product that literally and figuratively fuels the entire economy. Amazon is a diversified juggernaut with a finger in multiple pies. Its recent purchase of MGM might be the first real test, as there are some that believe the $8.5 billion deal could be unwound. Now, it's funny how Amazon became the second largest company in the United States without much friction from the government, but when it purchased MGM's catalog of more than 4,000 movies and 17,000 television episodes, people were like, whoa, don't you mess with Flipper, you motherfucker. But diversification is just one key element of Amazon's defense when it comes to talk of breaking it up. 
Looking at some of their biggest strategic acquisitions shows just how diverse the company has become. MGM for $8.5 billion, Whole Foods for $13.7 billion in 2017. Or how about Zooks, a self-driving startup for $1.2 billion, Ring for $1.2 billion in 2018, so you can see people steal your Amazon packages. Or for all you gamers out there, since 2014, Twitch has been an Amazon property. So when you're live streaming with you and your armchair warrior buddies as you pretend to be Navy SEALs or whatever the fuck you do, Amazon's watching. So those are examples of purchases that helped Amazon diversify. While they might not make sense on the surface, they all contribute to the intricate web of brand identity that has made Amazon ubiquitous. There are other notable acquisitions that make more sense with respect to the core online shopping operations, such as Zappos, the popular online shoe retailer purchased for $1.2 billion in 2009. I can't believe it was that long ago. Or PillPack, a startup online pharmacy delivery service licensed to deliver medicine throughout the United States. Amazon bought the company for $1 billion in 2018. Then there's Kiva Systems, a robotics firm that has helped Amazon automate a huge portion of its warehouse operations globally. Originally a vendor, Amazon figured it would be just easier to own the technology. In effect, prevent others from having it. <coughs> Walmart. <coughs> so Kiva went for a cool $770 million in 2012. Amazon also bought Souk, a Middle Eastern e-commerce giant, for an undisclosed sum. But we do know it paid $545 million to take over Quidsy, owner of Diapers.com, BeautyBar.com, Soap.com, and other prominent online retailers in 2011. Food, pharmaceuticals, home security, entertainment, autonomous driving, online retailers, robotics, gaming. Or put another way, what you eat, drugs you take, surveilling your home, what you watch, how you drive, what you buy, and the games you play. Okay, okay, okay. So it has a giant appetite. With loads of money to spend. And it sort of makes sense under one umbrella, I suppose. But what does that have to do with antitrust? That, my unfucking friends, is exactly the right question. And also the answer. To break up a big company, you have to be able to explain or understand what it is. What exactly are we proposing to break up? So a simple way to look at it would perhaps be to chip away at the parts. Take out Whole Foods, fuck them. Maybe make them split off Twitch. Tell them they have to stay out of self-driving automobiles. That would be a more traditional or I suppose antiquated way of looking at it. Because as we've said, busting up the whole online platform like a Ma Bell isn't as feasible because it's a digital international system as opposed to a physical network of cabling that could be regionalized. So essentially saying to Amazon, you're too big so we're gonna carve you up is a little difficult. And the problem with that scenario is that it's unclear whether any court would see it that way. There has to be clear evidence in theory that a concern has grown so large that it's one, presenting unfair competition in the marketplace, or two, is driving up prices for the consumer. The first concept is probably easier to pursue, though the burden of proof is pretty high, and I'll explain why in a minute. The latter scenario, involving consumer prices, is more straightforward, and in a bizarre way, it works in Amazon's favor. Here's Barry Lynn from the Open Markets Institute explaining the conundrum in a PBS documentary on Amazon. It's uh, important to understand sort of that there's two fundamental philosophies of antitrust, of anti-monopoly law. You know, there's the traditional philosophy in which you, you want to break up all potential concentrations of power that you can, but for the last 30 years, 
Uh, there's been this change in how we do antitrust. And this is the idea that the only purpose of antitrust should be to drive prices lower to serve the interest of the consumer. Right. So if the only acceptable avenue over the past several decades is to break up a company because they pose a concentration risk regarding pricing, then it's hard to argue that the company most responsible for driving down the price of goods is a candidate to be broken up. Ah. Yeah, it's tricky stuff. Like Walmart, Amazon is designed to drive prices down by extracting as much as it can from labor and suppliers, crushing other human and corporate margins in service of delivering low-cost goods to the consumer. Then we have the concentration argument itself, the idea that even if a company has driven prices down, and let's pretend that they've done it without being anti-competitive in any way, its sheer size presents the possibility of controlling prices without safeguards. On this, Amazon has a different argument. According to Payments.com, an online source that tracks all things related to servicing digital payments, Amazon topped 56% of all online retail sales in 2021. That, my friends, is encroaching on monopoly territory. And that's the argument made by those calling for Amazon to be investigated for antitrust violations. In fact, as McGillis writes in Fulfillment, quote, in October of 2020, the Democratic staff of the House subcommittee released a 449-page report on its investigation into the tech giant's dominance, calling on Congress to take action to break up the companies, end quote. McGill pointed to a Wall Street Journal investigation that found, quote, Amazon employees had repeatedly accessed documents and data about specific popular products before Amazon introduced almost identical products, end quote. That's the power of consolidated data and having access to everyone's information, purchasing habits, spending power, and spending habits. Couple that with controlling ad budgets, what you see on television or product placement on the big screen while you're gaming, etc., and a different picture emerges of just how much mindshare Amazon controls. You can only buy what you can find. Now, that's different than driving prices down, but the mechanisms of control are there nonetheless. Where Amazon extracts pain is on the seller side of things. Again, McGillis, quote, sellers are blocked from building relationships with customers and strongly discouraged from selling items for a lower price on any other site. Sellers' terms and fees on the marketplace could change without warning. For many merchants, Amazon could collect more than 30 cents of every dollar spent once you added up commissions, fulfillment fees, advertising on the site, and account management deals, some of which were optional for selling on the site, but hard to avoid for sellers hoping to succeed, end quote. There are other hidden costs. For example, if you're a third-party seller, Amazon doesn't let you have the customer's data. Sure, you get it eventually, but you actually have to pull out the stops to connect with your own customer because the real data the cookies, email, tracking pixels, they're all housed within Amazon. Which means if there are other follow-up purchases to be made, it's Amazon with the direct pipeline to your customer. They're way ahead of you. They also have the ability to draw customers' attention away from you. You've seen it on the site. Prompts like, you might also be interested in. Customers have also bought these items together, and so on. Tactics like retargeting, the strategy of serving ads to you for things that you've looked at when you're visiting on another site. All of that is controlled by Amazon. So even if a customer is interested in your product, Amazon can offer their own products or make you bid to find that customer 
because you don't get that customer's information even after they've made the purchase from you. That puts the onus on the seller to find ways to tease out your information after a customer has already made the purchase. So in the end, your loyalty as a customer becomes less about the label and more about the platform. Now let's revisit why despite these incredible odds in Amazon's favor, the company has been able to effectively argue that it is far from a monopoly. When pressed by Congress, Amazon was able to claim at the time that despite a controlling interest of online purchases, digital sales only represented about 5% of total retail when brick and mortar were added to the equation. Remember, this was only a couple of years ago when Congress released their findings, so 5%, right? That argument was enough to scuttle any deeper talks of breaking up Amazon because they had a point. Forget the fact that only two years later, that share has grown to 9.4%, according to Payments.com, for the first time beating out Walmart's 8.6% share. The fact is, these figures aren't enough to claim a monopoly. So on the surface, it sounds like a reasonable argument. Until you consider that total retail figures include things like gasoline, food, cars, boats. So in a way, it's apples and oranges. But in the strictest interpretation, this argument was enough for Amazon to avoid further scrutiny. Even though there were clear examples of anti-competitive practices, such as its purchase of Quincy. Did Quincy get paid handsomely for its troubles? Sure, but only after Amazon directly undercut key product lines like diapers so much that Quincy was bleeding millions of dollars. So ultimately, it was just easier for them to sell. One might think that examples like this would be enough to bring real scrutiny, but Amazon can always fall back on its central argument. It exists to serve the customer. Low prices is just one of the ways it accomplishes that. So bad enough it treats workers like shit, but when you think about Jeff Bezos' customer-centric mantra, it takes on a whole new meaning when viewed through this lens. Final thought on this chapter goes to Pitchfork Economics' Nick Hanauer as quoted in Fulfillment. Quote, Jeff's perspective is the canonical neoliberal perspective, that the only purpose of corporations, the only purpose of shareholders, is to enrich themselves to the exclusion of everything else. That is the highest sole responsibility. Maximize shareholder value and somehow magically that will create the common good. If the only fucking thing that matters is the stock price, why in the world would you do anything else? End quote. Of course, unfuckers will recognize this canonical sentiment as it can only be directly ascribed to Milton Friedman. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman. Chapter 6. Tiny Victories Remember when AOC was blamed for killing a deal to build a mega Amazon warehouse in her district? Liberal and conservative media alike roasted the congressperson for being the nimby face of opposition to these plans. Forget the fact that her district didn't want it, her constituents didn't need it. We covered it a long time ago in an episode about AOC. What her district needed wasn't low-wage warehouse jobs. Employment wasn't an issue. What they needed was affordable housing. AOC's larger point, which hopefully resonates a little more after part one, was that offering any sort of concessions or incentives to Amazon, given its size and profitability, was irresponsible. Removing productive taxpaying properties from the rolls would only serve to rob her district of vital revenues. But it didn't matter. Everyone was angry. 
from Governor Andrew Cuomo. Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. To a group funded by Robert Mercer, the hedge fund billionaire, that paid for a billboard in Times Square blaming the loss on Ocasio-Cortez, saying, thanks for nothing, AOC. And when it came to where Amazon's famed HQ2 would be located, states, cities, and counties around the country knelt before Bezos to offer the sun, the moon, and their firstborns. But none of these areas had what Bezos coveted the most, and that was proximity to power in Washington, D.C. So Virginia, with its proximity to D.C. lawmakers, its battery of lobbyists, and the Washington Post, the jewel in Bezos' crown of propaganda, was chosen instead. For a fleeting moment, AOC shouldered the burden of proving that people could stand up for what was in their best interests, even against the biggest, loudest bully in the room. And for a while, it stood alone as a tiny victory, David over Goliath, until someone else came along, someone without a bully pulpit or a million followers on Twitter, no status as an elected official or an influencer, just a worker. We played a clip of it in part one, and there's a neat part of fulfillment at the end of the book, kind of a postscript about union organizing, where McGillis talks about how Amazon, quote, fired a worker who organized a walkout at the huge warehouse in Staten Island, saying he violated safety protocol by coming to the warehouse while under self-quarantine, end quote. So now we know that that employee was Chris Smalls, and he was just getting started. Stephen Greenhouse, who I've always read as a labor reporter, he's covered uh, this space that you're working in for, for decades. Uh, he said today, quote, in my 25 years writing about labor, the union victory at Amazon Warehouse in Staten Island is by far the biggest beat the odds David versus Goliath unionization win I've seen. They fired him. Then they forgot about him. So everyone underestimated him. Big mistake. Big, huge by now, you might have heard this clip, but I want to leave it out there because there's nothing I can say or offer that can touch the power of the statement made by Christian Smalls when pressed by Lindsey Graham at a congressional hearing. Graham was criticizing his efforts and promised to restore power to corporate America when Republicans take back control of Congress. And so here's how Smalls responded. Um, well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, first of all, you know, you're it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this these companies operate. And if we're not protected, and if the process for when we hold these companies accountable is not working for us, then that's not what... That's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So. That's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. That's what I was alluding to in part one, taming the beast. We might not have the power or the understanding of how to put Amazon back into the bottle. That genie might have escaped, but it doesn't mean we give up the ghost. 
Epilogue. Bring it home, Max. I also I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. So hey, thanks for sending me to space, everyone. He seems like a nice guy. People thought that this was a seriously out of touch thing for Bezos to say, but he really fucking meant it. Part of what makes it easy to root against Amazon is that Jeff Bezos is such a dick. Elon Musk is a polarizing charlatan for sure, but like I said in part one, Bezos is actually an evil genius and a mastermind. And now he's too big to control. As McGillis observes, quote, there was the extreme wealth inequality encapsulated by its founder's outlandish personal fortune and the modest wages of the base preponderance of its employees. There was the nature of the work most of them were engaged in, rudimentary and isolating, out on the edge of town, often with unreliable hours and schedules. There was the immense influence the company had amassed over the country's elected government. There was the unraveling of the civic fabric that the company contributed to through its undermining of face-to-face -face commercial activity and the tax base of countless communities." End quote. The neoliberal winner-take-all attitude might make Bezos the darling of Wall Street and subject of Harvard business case studies. There are two of them so far. It belies the underlying evil of a corporation built to extract, to take your money, your data, your attention, your time. Tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel. With insane revenues and profits and such a controlling market share of multiple industries, it would be such a small thing to honor one's workers, especially now that these workers represent one out of every 160 workers in the country. But Amazon antagonizes them at every step of the way, and they have 150% turnover. Fighting all efforts to organize for better protections in so many ways, Amazon is the perfect proxy for America. The pinnacle of the libertarian dream conceived by James Buchanan, Robert Mercer, Charles and David Koch, Richard Fink, Ayn Rand, Peter Thiel, John Olin, Joseph Kors, Dick DeVos, and Michael Horowitz. I can't even include Uncle Fucknugget on this list because what these people did to pervert even Milton Friedman's misguided worldview should be criminalized. But make no mistake, Amazon is a byproduct of their efforts. Beyond the abuse of the working class, extraction of surplus capital from the system, tax evasion, propaganda campaigns, influence peddling, data theft, and unrelenting push towards mindless consumerism, there's a cost that we're all unwittingly bearing. You see, a couple years ago, Amazon was shamed into participating in a global climate accountability project something it refused to do long after its peers in the corporate world had signed on. In its very first assessment, the company earned an F grade, which prompted Amazon to act, but not in the way you would hope. As Reveal News reports, quote, Amazon takes responsibility for the full climate impact only of products with an Amazon brand label, which makes up about 1% of its online sales, end quote. Basically, instead of complying with global standards and targets, Amazon worked diligently to manipulate the data that it reports. As Reveal continues, quote, if Amazon were counting its footprint like some of its competition, it would have to get rid of tens of millions more tons of carbon emissions by radically transforming its business, forcing suppliers to change their own operations, paying for enormous amounts of controversial carbon offsets, or maybe 
even confronting whether the climate pledge is compatible with Amazon's business model after all, end quote. Between its AWS server infrastructure, tens of thousands of vehicles on the road, global distribution and logistics network, downward pressure on suppliers to cut costs at the expense of investing into better standards, Amazon is a one-stop climate disaster. The only reason it even works to pay lip service to sustainability is because it's popular among investors and allows them to remain in giant ESG portfolios. That, unfuckers, is what we mean by greenwashing. Not one of you, not a single person that gets by in this modern world can escape the influence of Amazon. If you're not already one of the 150 million Amazon Prime customers, then you've probably watched a show on a streaming service that distributes on their cloud server infrastructure. At a minimum, you've been on a website that lives in the AWS environment. Hell, maybe you've even shopped at Whole Foods. The bottom line, they know more about you than most of your friends and acquaintances, maybe even more than some family members, depending on your digital footprint. A couple of years ago, I was speaking with a CTO at this big tech company in New York who was on a tour at Amazon HQ. At the time, Amazon had yet to construct the massive network of warehouses that are currently maintained. So in order to fulfill the promise of Amazon Prime, it relied on predictive AI. So they demonstrated technology to this guy that built models around your personal spending patterns, seasonality, items that you've purchased in the past. They knew when you got paid, what your financial situation was, your credit limit. Together, they could paint a predictive portrait of your consumption so accurately that it would begin shipping your items to local warehouses before you put them in your cart. If they guessed right, they could keep their promise. If they didn't, no harm, no foul. You'd buy it eventually. That's the power of data. There are many who love this and think it's making the world a better place. But there are others who understand the terrifying power of potential manipulation at a scale never ever before seen in the world. And because we exercise so little control over this particular behemoth, we're forced to just trust that it will protect the best interests of society. Us. You know, the customer. Jeffrey Bezos is not your friend. Smalls is the real giant. Tame the Amazon. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. So before we muse together, I promised that this would be the summer of legislation. So it's time for... Know Your Bills! This summer, we're committed to covering timely and relevant pending legislation to marry with our unfuckings. Without further ado, UNFTR Legislative Session 1, June of 2022, is now in order. The Honorable Max presiding. On the floor today is H.R. 842, Protecting the Right to Organize Act of 2021. Here's a summary of the bill according to Congress.gov. This bill expands various labor protections related to employees' rights to organize and collectively bargain in the workplace. 
Among other things, it 1. Revises the definitions of employee, supervisor, and employer to broaden the scope of individuals covered by the Fair Labor Standards. 2. Permits labor organizations to encourage participation of union members in strikes initiated by employees represented by a different labor organization, i.e. secondary strikes. And 3. Prohibits employers from bringing claims against unions that conduct such secondary strikes. The bill also allows collective bargaining agreements to require all employees represented by the bargaining unit to contribute fees to the labor organization for the cost of such representation, notwithstanding a state law to the contrary, and expands unfair labor practices to include prohibitions against replacement of or discrimination against workers who participate in strikes. H.R. 842 also makes anti-union membership meetings sponsored by the employer illegal and it prevents retribution against employees seeking to engage in organizing activities, and it also includes whistleblower protections. The primary sponsor of the bill is Robert Bobby Scott, a Democrat out of Virginia, who obviously is immune to the influence of nearby Amazon and all their blood-sucking fucking lobbyists. This particular bill passed along party lines in 2021 with the split of 225 to 206. It's called the PRO Act, and it stands for Protecting the Right to Organize. Known as H.R. 842, the bill was passed in the House on March 9th, and should the bill pass the Senate as it is currently written, it could mean sweeping changes for unions and workers and their rights to organize. And once again, allow union organizing campaigns and voting procedures to be conducted on a level playing field that has been severely tilted in favor of businesses over the last half century. There's no CBO commentary for this bill, by the way, because it's unclear that it would have an impact either way on the federal budget. But the benefits to workers are certainly clear. Passing the PRO Act would be a huge step forward, though it's obvious that it would face an uphill battle in the Senate. But we have to keep the flame lit into the next Congress and beyond if necessary if we're to support heroes on the ground like Chris Smalls. I would hope, however, that moving forward, worker protection legislation would also include domestic and migrant agricultural workers who are often left out of critical protections under the law. So let's get back into post-show musings. I hope you like that little legislative addendum. And I hope you like these two episodes on Amazon. For me, it was fascinating just because I never really thought about just how fucking big their other services were and how profitable they are. And sort of this like matrix style view of the whole thing coming into focus. Like, wow, no matter where I go online and maybe someday the physical world because they're working on it. But no matter where I travel, they see me and they're gathering data. And it's not that they're not using that. They're using that data to push out some of their own fucking partners and suppliers to put their products in front of them. I mean, it's really it's really evil shit. Yeah, the AWS one is what bumps me out the most because like I said I try to cut them out of my life as consciously as I can but everything we do is AWS company we work with very closely is built on AWS right. and they're kind of the backbone of our business what are we going to do right. so that one that one. yeah or that you're paying a, a few bucks every month to Netflix or maybe it's Disney Plus or maybe it's Hulu or whatever um, and they're scraping off a few pennies of that and sending it to Amazon well, too I don't pay for any of those because I steal, steal passwords it. Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, I don't pay for my roommate pays for two of those. My best friend pays for one. So I don't. But my parents have cable, and I use their cable login, and I'm sure that's so HBO, all that shit is HBO Plus is streaming through there. HBO Max. Not everything's plus. I thought it was plus on here. No, it's is Max. It HBO Max. So, um, my grandpa. Outside of work, 
you've done a pretty good job of cutting it out, right? You'll go Trader Joe's over Whole Foods if you have to, or just a local market? Yeah. I mean, the closest closest grocery store in my apartment is Stop and Shop, so I go there. And they actually have a decent vegan section. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I actually didn't really care for Whole Foods in general, because it's sort of a farce. Like, it's not actually for vegans. It's for people who want to pretend they're eating healthy and they get, you know, overpriced organic stuff. But it's just, I mean, they've definitely expanded and they have more vegan stuff now as vegan vegan living becomes, quote, trendier and more mainstream. But yeah, I try not to. I love Trader Joe's. I mean, come on. They're garlic stuffed olives. Ugh. I'm, I'm a fish out of water in Trader Joe's. Wow. I don't know what to do. What do you mean? Everything looks like it needs to be prepared. No, they got frozen stuff. I'm a really lazy eater. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Trader Joe's... Trader Joe's looks like a lot of work. It looks like for people who are like interesting in the kitchen. No, if anything, I actually think it's the opposite because, see, I wouldn't go to Trader Joe's and do my full grocery shopping because I'm not going to get their produce. I'm going to go to somewhere else for my produce. Mm. I go there for little specialty things, you know, like my garlic stuffed olives, like vegan tzatziki, which tastes just like regular tzatziki. What's... What's not vegan about normal tzatziki? Yogurt. Not vegan, right? Right, right. Because it's that's made from cows. A cow. Yeah, it's gross. Fermented. Right. It tastes just. Is Chobani like... okay? No. Oh, as also a company not... or as a vegan? It's, yeah. It, I mean, that's it's, not. It's yogurt. More sustainable though. Different kind of yogurt. Better yogurt. I don't know. Uh, I think it's just a different style. It's Greek yogurt, I believe. I think all yogurt is disgusting. <laughs> I hate yogurt. Do you? Number one. I really like number it. Number one thing I hate is ketchup. What? Number two thing I hate is yogurt. I can't. I won't what, even. I won't, what are you even I won't let my saying? roommate get ketchup. Like, Why? Because it's disgusting and it, it makes me sick. It, Just even seeing it makes me sick. something wrong with you. No. Mustard yes. is superior. What? To ketchup. What is even happening right now? How could you not? This is. I put ketchup on everything. Ew. Everything. You're the problem. My go-to, and you'll hate all of this then, Ugh. my go-to in college when I was hammered would be uh, a hot dog place that stayed open till like five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I'd just, I'd just hammer Ew. hot dogs with ketchup and onions. Ew. Yes. Even Amazing. when I ate meat, I didn't like that. Mustard goes on hot dogs, not ketchup. Did, no, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. It just doesn't. Yes, it does. Mustard is superior. There's so many Agree more ways. To disagree. To, well, first Agree off, to disagree. I will say that my number one is buffalo sauce. So that. What, what even is that? Like Frank's. What? Frank's. Frank's what? Red hot. Buffalo sauce. What well, is like, buffalo sauce? Like, what? It's like ketchup with spice in it, right? Absolutely ketchup with a little not. Tabasco. There is literally no ketchup in there. So how else do you think you avoid Amazon? Let's go, let's go through this. Stop muttering over there. You're stupid mustard stance on life. That just doesn't make any sense. All you right. ever had like so a, a good out of beer the mustard take, with like seeds? Oh, so good. See out of the equation. All right, you got prime. All right, so you're telling me you don't fuck with any of these. Okay. This is outside of your work life. It, we're in your work life. AWS, ergo, Amazon is inescapable, right? Yes. But prime video, Amazon, delivery service, Amazon Prime. I don't have it. Netflix. Well, I don't pay for it. Disney Plus. Don't pay for HBO it. HBO Max. My parents pay for it. Peacock. I paid for it for a month by accident. Discovery Plus. Don't have it. Hulu. I don't pay for it. Okay. Now we got the cloud storage which we already talked about. 
What about oh, the third party sellers wouldn't you won't buy from Amazon itself. So you won't buy anything from their third party sellers. So outside of your work life, you are doing a pretty effective job. Thank you. Of skirting the giant. You know, it stuns me. 150 million prime customers. It seems incomprehensible to me. Do you think they're counting unique accounts? Because like when I had prime, I shared it with my mom and my sister. So that's three of us on one account. Are they counting profiles? Like you can have your own profile in a Prime account. Are they counting delivery addresses? Or is it going to be, let's say on average, three people share an account, four in your family. Is it 150 times four? It's a good question because it, it would defy logic that they would have 45% of our population. Would it Pain. though? Paying. Would it defy logic? For Prime? I think so. Well, you also, you get student discounts. So I paid much less for it when I was in college. And then I kept using my college email address and got it. And then I, and I told them I wasn't graduated yet. <laughs> I got it for like cheaper for another couple of years. Okay. Everybody's got to get their thing, right? Hey, I'm, I don't care if I'm technically committing a crime by lying about my collegiate status to Jeffrey Bezos. Or stealing all of the services that run on their network. Is it stealing if someone in your home pays for it? If, uh, no, I'm going to say no. your heart pays for it? <laughs> so let's go back to last week where you were talking about why you pulled, like, why did you pull the ripcord on the Amazon world to begin with? If I feel strongly about something and I'm not doing something about it. Why did you begin to feel strongly about it? Because they treat their workers like shit. They're terrible for the environment. Were you aware of the environmental footprint issue as much as the worker issue? I think that I was, feel like that's less spoken about. I feel like that was more of my, when I stopped, it was pre-smalls, all of that stuff, like way before it. I mean, I knew like it wasn't a great place to work, but I think I was more concerned about the environment. Yeah, okay. It's hard to trace my exact thinking, but I mean, I've always been kind of dialed into this type of stuff. So yeah, I felt like. If I'm going to complain about this shit and say it's bad, I should practice what I preach. And I try to do that in most facets of my life if I can, which definitely makes me kind of annoying. I know that <laughs> I don't have Amazon, but I don't, you know, I don't usually lead with that, but I feel like it's the bare minimum. Okay. That's why I would want to get off Twitter if Musk takes it over, because I don't want to, if I'm going to say it's bad and all this shit, then why would I participate in that? I think that's mostly because you were such a big Jack Dorsey fan though, right? Yes. I bought his tweet, his bro. tweet NFT or whatever. Oh my God. That's worth like $5 now. Completely depreciated because it never had any value. Just saying. Well, if this was illuminating to you on fuckers, please let us know. You can write to us, obviously. Email us. Go to the site at unftr.com. Fill out the form there. You can just send us a direct email. You didn't answer my question about Web3. You're right. I didn't. I'm offended. Don't be offended. No, I'm offended because I know that secretly you wrote in your notebook. You said, Danny's a fucking idiot. She asked me about Web3. I'm not going to answer her because I hate her. Don't tell me you didn't do that. I did not do that in my notebook. Just in your phone. You open the notes yeah, app. I yeah, because I know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if your stupid phone has that. <laughs> Leave my stupid phone out of this. My kids are really putting a lot of pressure on me. Yeah. You know how annoying it is to have one person in your family not have an iPhone? Yes. And I know how hypocritical I sound right now after shitting on <laughs> Amazon and I'm like, iPhones, 
But look, I mean, I can only do so much, okay? There's some bare minimum existence. I am that guy. If I didn't have a phone, you'd have to get me a phone. Because, you know what I mean? If I was like fully off the grid. Right. But I worked here, like you'd have to get me a work phone. Because you talk to me. Right. So, if you were fully off the grid, I don't think you would have found your way here. Well, if I started to go off the grid. Yeah. During my tenure. Yeah. You'd yeah. be pretty useless to us. Well, I'm saying if grid. I was off the grid in my personal <laughs> we life. We work on computers all day. <laughs> but I'm saying you would, it would, everything would be provided by you, so I'd be uh, morally clean. Uh, I see, yes, I see. When I enter the pearly gates, right. the the great man in the sky would say, oh, you use computers, but only for work? Come on in. Right. Eat as much, you know, spaghetti. That's what they did in that movie. Which movie? Defending Your Life. They just ate a bunch of spaghetti. Don't you remember? Defending Your Life. We talked about Albert yeah. Brooks. Defending yeah. your, your life is is just perfect. Yeah. I so. mean, Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks, what a couple. Right? Weird couple. Perfect couple. Weird couple. I love it so much. So write to us. Let us know what you think. I owe 99 some thoughts on Web3, obviously. You owe the unfuckers the thoughts. I owe the unfuckers some thoughts. I was so drilled into their financials. Like, wow, wow. It's amazing. It's so much money. It's so much fucking money. It's incomprehensible. It's just, what do you do with all of it? You go to outer space, apparently. You build a big, giant dick rocket, and you bring... Dick rocket. rocket. Captain Kirk with you. Dick rocket. It's the only cool thing that he has ever done, is bring Captain Kirk yeah, into outer space. Yeah, but he's also, I mean, look, William Shatner's not a great guy. Not a great guy, but I'm just saying. He should have brought Sulu. Or Mark Hamill, but Mark wouldn't fuck with him, right? Definitely not. He would be like, yeah, go I don't fuck think, yourself. see, that's the thing. Sulu would have been like... No. Right. Right. He could have brought the corpse of Leonard Nimoy. Wow, I thought that was super dark. Was it? I mean, as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by the sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Fuck you, Amazon. I'm doing better now. I'm gone. gone. Won't be treated like shit no more. I'm moving, moving on. on. Safety bitches don't give a fuck about safety. No, they don't. Human resources don't give a fuck about, about me. me? The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Why? Why it's Mr. Spock. Spock. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. This show is hosted by Leonard Nimoy's Corpse and distributed <laughs> by Dick Rockets. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member of buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. By the way, Unfuckers went crazy on the flash Buck Milton Friedman sale. That was unbelievable. We actually sold out of inventory, so we had to restart a whole bunch of it. So well done. The good part about that is that discount, we take the haircut, not the folks on the Puspatak reservation. So the show takes a haircut on that, but they stay fully funded because we pay the full price for the coffee on our side. So we did a really good thing here on Fuckers and sent a lot of business to Amy at the Unkachog Nation, at Native Coffee Traders, and uh, we kept Big Mama busy. Good stuff. So anyway, and by the way, read our essays on Substack because they will always be free. You can just go to unftr.com slash Substack. That's just not what it is. 
So you can go to unftr.substack.com. And I think it's time for me to go to bed. As Spock once said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Are you sure that was Spock? Mm-hmm. Okay. Jeffrey Bezos should adhere to that. By the way, we have a couple of JBs. Because we really should say, we, we should add Bezos to the to the hashtag Pantheon. Yeah. Can live I tell you my prosper. pet peeve? Yeah. Is when people do live long and prosper. Yeah. Like. Like this? No. Like when they think, they just think this means alien. And I'm oh. like, this has a very specific meaning in the Vulcan language. Oh, wow. It is not just an alien thing. It's getting really animated right now. Because it's... How dare people? Yes. Yeah. I love Spock. He's my favorite. Okay. So, so favorite you wanted to exhume his body and send him to space. It's nice. Without his permission. I would get his son's permission. So, go to Substack. You did that already. Right. I'm just trying to... Because you're just, you're so intense right now about the Spock thing. I just, we'll see you next week, everybody. Nanu, Nanu. Fuck Amazon. 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 Fuck Amazon.